Today on The Black Goat, what comes next? We talk about our experiences and expectations about life after major milestones like tenure and promotion, and a letter about finding a few good people at the top. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tullett. And Alexa, you just had an ominous birthday. An ominous birthday? I didn't know it was ominous. It's it's like the, the when all the when Jesus and all the rock stars like kick it. I feel like that's maybe Is that thirty three? Maybe yeah, maybe I'm like showing my age. I remember because that was how old <laughs> Kurt Cobain was when he died. I remember this used to be a thing, like everybody dies when they hit thirty three. Um mm. but maybe that was just like Maybe you know. I'm showing my my youth. <laughs> I don't know when Kurt Cobain died. <laughs> do you do you at least know who Kurt Cobain is? Vaguely. Please give me that much. <laughs> I know he was married right? to somebody named Courtney, but I always forget which Courtney. Oh my god, you guys. <laughs> Courtney Love, I, I know that much. I know it's I mean, not the one from Friends. I expect this. <laughs> I expect this with my students that they won't get all my pop culture references. But you oh, guys, it's you're not just age in my case. It's just whatever it is, combination of nerdiness <laughs> and being an immigrant and whatever. Yeah. So okay. So speaking of age, well, okay. Technically, my birthday. I am not yet thirty-three. It's on my birthday is on the thirteenth. Um, but I did have a birthday party on the weekend. Um, and I had a joint birthday party with uh, one of my friends who is a few years older than me. I should know how old she is, but I don't know. Um, but uh, it got me thinking about like what it means to have a birthday party as an adult. You um, once gave because... me a really hard time for throwing my own birthday party. Or you said that like that it's like not, not cool. something I would do. <laughs> not for me specifically, but you were like saying that it's like so uncool. It's like. Or arrogant or something. We were talking about like, it was like a list of things that were arrogant and throwing yourself a birthday party was in there. And I was like, that's not arrogant. That's like, you're doing your friends a favor. You're like, I'll organize my own birthday party. All right. Either. Maybe it was even on the podcast. Maybe our listeners will remember. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, email in if you think that I said that it was arrogant to throw yourself a birthday (laughs) I would never say that because I throw myself a birthday party every year. Yeah, I don't think you were like judging other people, but I think I think we disagreed. Like I thought it was actually less arrogant because I, I don't like it when people like sit around and wait to see what their friends are going to do for them for their uh-huh. birthday. But right, yeah. Anyway, so so I think right. you did a good thing throwing yourself. Maybe a I think party. it's uh, arrogant and good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I do it consistently for exactly that reason because I think that people like to go to parties. Um, and they like when other people throw parties that they can attend and they don't have to do anything. Um, and so like my birthday is like an easy excuse to, to do that. Um, but yeah, our, our birthday party had a theme, which I think is uncommon for adult birthday parties. Um, and also like when we were like preparing for the birthday party, we went to like the dollar store and bought like, you know, like potato chips and Cheetos and put them in giant bowls, and that was like the food that we had at our party. Um, and then, and then we had some like uh, fake flowers because the theme was nature. Um, and I just think like that might not be typical of an adult. Oh, and also like we had karaoke, so I'm not sure if if I've really like um, become an adult yet. <laughs> this sounds like I did you, get older. You got a theme. You got giant bowls of junk food, like. You got an, act, an organized activity. This sounds like the birthday parties I go to with my eight-year-old. 
exactly. Right. <laughs> which are um, not the but, birthday parties I went to when I was a kid, which was just like you'd show up at somebody's house and whatever. But like now they're all they're always like organized and, you know, they're often like at a place that does a thing. And, you know, mm-hmm. although I guess you did you say you had yours at home? Yeah. Well, it was my friend's home, not okay. my home. All right. Yeah. Yeah. But still, yeah. That, it does feel very like kids birthday for grownups, which is kind of cool. <laughs> Honestly, I think that um, grownups like a lot of things that are designed for children and they just like feel like it's socially unacceptable to do them. Like, for instance, playgrounds. Playgrounds are really fun. Swings are like the most fun thing ever. Yeah, but swings are really fun. Can can yeah. I just can I just throw out there that this this is a very gendered thing. <laughs> if <laughs> if you're a middle-aged man and you're hanging out alone at a playground, <laughs> you're going to get some very deserved side eye from people. <laughs> in fact, I, in New York, I remember be, visiting being in New York and there are playgrounds there that have signs up that say no unaccompanied adults. Because, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I think some of it is oh, just, like, creepy. they don't want people, like, using the equipment for the kids. But some of it is, like, get your creepy ass out of here, old yeah. man. Yeah. Although, the, I don't know that it's deserved that it's gendered. Because, like, that there was this really sweet uh, letter on the NPR the other day. I think it was a local part of the segment. But it was this, like, teenage boy saying he wants to babysit. But, like, none of the parents will hire him to babysit their kids because he's a boy. Well, that, that's totally Sucks. different than a middle-aged man hanging out at the park. Yeah, no, my my son yeah. has has uh, male and female babysitters, and and he loves them both. And and mm-hmm. you know, the yeah, like it's especially like you know for my son because he's really into sports and stuff like that. And so like having like a teenage boy who's like really sweet and really like you know plays with him and does like physical you know mm-hmm. sportsy stuff because his te- his babysitter's also into that like. That's actually that goes over really well. So so, yeah. If if that teenage boy happens to be in Eugene, Oregon, is looking for a gig, uh, get get. In touch. <laughs> yeah, let him know. <laughs> yeah. But I think throwing your own birthday party. So like going back to like how I think it's like a favor to your friends because yeah, you get you throw a party. But also like to me, even if I like don't care that much about my birthday, there's no way for it not to be a test if you leave it if you don't plan anything, right? Like you find out what people would do for you. And I don't, I hate that. That's like my least favorite thing for people to do to their friends is to test their friends. Mm -hmm. So I feel like you have to really be proactive, either like be out of town, which I do sometimes, or like plan something yourself because otherwise it's like, even if you really mostly don't care, you'll be a little bit disappointed if the whole day goes by and nothing happens. Does this mean you've been disappointed every year that I forget your birthday (laughs) slash don't give you a present? (laughs) No, we give each other birthday presents for like random months, right? Yeah. Okay. So you know that you're not getting anything on Thursday, right? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you specifically said that it's September 13th for my sake because you knew that I didn't actually know which specific day it was. (laughs) Yes. I know that you don't know how old I am or when my birthday is. But do you know those things about me? I mean, yeah, well, I know you're 38 because you said it before we started. <laughs> and then your birthday is, I always get confused, is the February the 27th? Nope. 26th? Nope. The 28th? <laughs> How many days are in February? Oh my God! Our listeners are going to be like resetting Samin's passwords on everything now. They're gonna... <laughs> Wait, what's your mother's maiden name? So... <laughs> um, it's the it's the day before, so like. The 29th gets cut off, right? Right, right. So the 29th is leap day, and I was born in 1980, so it was a leap year. So I was just a few hours away from being a leap day baby. Right. But, I mean, I always forget yours, too. And, and Sanjay, you're, like, in August sometime? Yeah. 
I got the month. Yeah. <laughs> Beginning of August? 6th? 8th? 14th. Oh, we just missed it. Yeah. We yeah. didn't even say anything. Yeah, did I know. I, I did. No, I didn't do anything because I was waiting for my friends to organize. <laughs> <laughs> no, I we did sing the friends theme song for you one year, so that, I think we're good. That for is two true. Years. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I uh, um, no, th- this year I just kind of like you know wasn't. I was just wanted to like have a chill birthday with my family, and so we didn't plan anything. Kristen was like totally leading up. She's like, "Do you want to do something? If you want to do something, just like like she was all ready to organize for me, which was really sweet." Um, we kind of do that for each other, although she probably does more for me. But I love it when I, it's funny because I went I went through a period where like I wasn't waiting for my friends to organize, but I felt really self conscious. Like that sort of like I I, I never it was weird because I never felt this way when other people would organize birthdays. But I would feel like oh I, it's so like self centered to organize a birthday party for yourself. And now I'm like so past that. I'm like if I want to have a birthday party, I'm like yeah I'll totally organize something. And I love it when other people do because. Yeah, it's like, how often do you get to have to go to parties and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so if it's just like a pretext to have a party, why the hell not? Yep, I'm with you. Yeah. And you had a factor of five birthday this year, too, right? That's a good excuse to do something. Or did I already forget how old you are? (laughs) (laughs) I am am a a seven-inch record years old. Uh, <laughs> oh, that so yeah, so no one younger than you will understand that. Right? <laughs> is forty-five the rotations per minute or something? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Huh. So, do you guys know that. what records are? Is that? Uh, <laughs> 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 I used to buy Kurt Cobain's albums. Actually, I didn't. He was after that. But anyway, yeah. Um, that's a whole other thing. I'm, I've been getting into vinyl lately because I feel like I have to have a middle-aged affectation in that. <laughs> I was gonna say, is it because you feel like it sounds better on vinyl? You know, honestly, not really. Like, I mean, sometimes streaming does. You can like if it's especially if it's like a low-quality stream. But it's mostly just like I sort of enjoy the like it reminds me of childhood. Yeah, it reminds me of childhood and how I used to. We used to listen to records. I enjoy the sort of like it's kind of like a more deliberate way to listen to music. You listen to whole albums. Um, and yeah, so it's like, it's totally an affectation. Like you do not need to do this. There's no like, like people who say, Oh, it's better quality is such bullshit. Like it's, I mean, Oh, you're going to get angry. Letters. I know. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I can already think of several people who are going to write to you. Yeah. Yeah. But no, but it's just like, it's, it's just like, like it, it's a different way of interacting with the music that's that's why i like it um yeah yeah you have to be sort of a bit more thoughtful about it right like you have you have to decide to put the record on and that's like a process and then and you have to be paying attention um, because i i have a my turntable isn't an automatic so when the record's over you have to like go and take you know turn it off and take the tone arm off and so Mm -hmm. it's like yeah it's like it's not just like background music um are cassette tapes gonna make a comeback because i could get into that you know they what it is like a it's kind of a hipster thing like the there's a a new record shop in town that i go to that that's only vinyl and cassettes and i and the first time i went in, i was like what the fuck cassettes and then i was like got online i was like oh all the hipster kids are into cassettes i miss i miss making mixtapes i miss like sitting by the radio waiting to get record to make a mixtape yeah did you okay so you did that with a radio right like, yeah. you'd wait for good songs to come on the radio. Uh-huh. That blows my mind now. Like, I it did that, too. It sounds like so much fun to me. Like, <laughs> I would love to do that now. I would listen to music if I could do that now. I yeah. guess I could. 
I mean, I remember uh, uh, I had yeah, a, I don't think I had anything's a stopping you. dual cassette boombox and, you know, you used to like make mixes for your friends and yeah, like pass them out. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I used to make a lot of mixtapes. I guess I used to be into music at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time, you knew who Kurt Cobain was and you knew Courtney Love's last name. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I always mixed it up with Courtney Cox. Well, speaking speaking That's of... so weird. <laughs> I thought you were thinking of Courtney Barnett, and I was like, maybe you know, but Courtney Cox but is Courtney like the Cox weirdest. Around the same time, nineties. Uh, yeah, she's also a TV star. <laughs> they both have an O in their last name. <laughs> All right, I think we need to move on. Sanjay before, is just uh, dying a little more each yeah. time we continue to talk about this. Before my soul just like leaks I have, out. Wait, I just want to defend myself a little bit. I have the number of color synesthesia and vowels also have color. So I remember like which vowels are in names because they have the same color. So I remember that like there's a black last name. You have number was... color synesthesia? How did oh, I not know that? Vowel, vowel color, number of color, and vowel, vowel color. <laughs> my consonants do not have colors. It's oh, very man. strange. Number of color is really common. Anyway, okay. Let we letter. All right. <laughs> Let's read our letter. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Dear the Black Goat, here's the question that has been bugging me as a senior psychologist in the UK. From time to time, there are opportunities to nominate an eminent overseas psychologist for an award or lecture, and I find myself racking my brains to think of someone. Problem is, almost all the names that come to mind are people whose science seems built on QRPs and or who are notorious for bad behavior, ranging from sexism and bullying to self-promotion. I have started wondering if the U.S. is particularly bad in this regard, and whether you can only get to the top by bad behavior. I'd like to be reassured this isn't so, so it would be interesting to hear from you who are senior psychologists, any field of psychology, who are your heroes. We need positive role models. Thanks for the podcast, Anonymous. So my answer is yes, you should definitely use national stereotypes to select award winners. <laughs> uh, I'm assuming overseas here means like outside of Europe, maybe, although UK is not exactly in Europe. Uh, we won't get into that. <laughs> are they or aren't they these days? Um, Depends what day we're recording. Right. Um, that's a tough question. I mean, I think the the idea that so so I mean I I don't know UK versus US differences. That seems like a really hard thing to to generalize about because I you know I just I don't feel like I have sort of like a systematic sense. I mean, I it it would surprise me if there's that much difference just because I think the the prestige dynamics don't seem all that different and. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there are there are people who have been doing things right and have been doing things right for a long time. And it's hard because, I mean, we talked about this before, like, you know, way back we had a discussion about, like, how do you evaluate pre-2011 work, like pre-replication crisis work? And it's it's hard because the things that we are now looking at, like, you know, pre-registration and, and other forms of transparency just didn't exist. And so how do you know? But, you know, I think I, I do think you kind of have to like there are some people who have been trying for a long time to do it right. And, and they may not always be the, the first names that come to somebody's mind. And I mean, so I guess one thing I would say is like, you know, awards and we've we talk a lot about like the matthew effect and you know the rich get richer and the awarded get awarded more and this could be an opportunity to break that cycle to you know 
like create who is eminent rather than just reflect who's already viewed as eminent. Like if you're in a position to give out a major lecture or an award, look to people who maybe aren't the like the name on the tip of everybody's tongue and who are maybe younger, maybe operating more kind of under-recognized or on the margins and, and to say like, this person is worthy of this award. Um, yeah. So that, I mean, that would be a, a way to go. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I feel kind of reluctant to name specific individuals just because it feels kind of weird and, and I don't know what like areas or topics these awards are for, but Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, the letter um, also mentions lectures, and I'm in this position uh, once a year in the domain of social psychology because uh, I run our department's sort of like annual colloquium thing, and so I have to um, invite somebody to come and speak at UA, and I do find that I face this same kind of challenge where, um, you know, it's not maybe the same as an award where... I think you have a little bit more room to decide, uh, at least as a, an award committee, what you want to award. Um, but I do feel some like responsibility to my department to like pick people who I know they're like they're going to think give a great talk and talk about things that are really like broadly interesting and like name recognition. You know, also comes to my mind. And I think if I were picking people purely based on like who I would want to see give a talk, my my choices might sometimes be be different. Um, well, now but that I you feel... have tenure, you can do it, and there's nothing they can do. <laughs> <laughs> Which we'll talk about later. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, but actually, like in in answer to the question about our heroes, I mean, this year uh, we're having Brian Nosek come and give this talk, and I'm really excited about that. And I do think of him as kind of a hero um, or a positive role model. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there are people for whom the like all of that typical status stuff also kind of sometimes aligns with the great work that they do so i'm in that position this year it's interesting because i bet brian's not even that old right like it's funny because for like a replicability person we think of him as like very senior but i bet he's like is he around your age sanjay do you know yeah i think he's i think he's really close to my age so, like, normally for the kinds of things this letter right. writer is talking about, I would imagine they often mean someone, like, towards the end of their career. Because mm-hmm. when I've been in situations like that, it's, like, sometimes it's, like, really limited in terms of career stage and seniority, like, who will be accepted as even remotely suitable. And mm-hmm. there it's really hard. Like, it's really, really hard to think of people. I mean, partly it's just I don't know those people as well, and so they don't come to mind as easily. But the people who do come to mind often... I do think like there's a correlation, right? Got there for reasons that that aren't the reasons I would want to reward. Yeah, I mean, the letter writer sort of brings up this idea of like a like a negative correlation, right, between good practices and like eminence or fame. Top, and yeah. I I don't think that's crazy because I think that a lot of the things that made people successful 20 years ago and before mm-hmm. um, were things that. Are exact go exactly counter to um, the kinds of things that like the open science movement are advocating against now, right? Um, so, and yeah, yeah although- I mean, that's that's not just these are things that were prioritized differently in, in different periods of time. 
Yeah, although I'm, I'm curious if there really is a UK-US difference, which it seems unlikely to me. But on the other hand, I've been watching two shows that get mixed up when I'm like falling asleep. They become one show, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, the Great British Baking Show and Bachelor in Paradise. And if those <laughs> are representative of UK culture and US culture, then they're drastically different in terms of humility and everything else. But it's really fascinating when you're like falling asleep and the contestants on Great British Baking Show have to make sure that someone gives them a rose next time, otherwise they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> And they like, they start taking off their shirts after they put the company <laughs> up in. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do want to come back to this idea that this, this can be an opportunity to elevate people, right? Because, yeah. you know, I, I look at my advisor, Ravenna Helson, one of my two advisors, um, and she's, she's now retired. Um, but uh, she had this very, you know, talking about like sexism and bullying and things like that. She had this very long career where for a very long stretch of time, because of overt sexism, institutional sexism and, and other ways, she was not recognized. She was not given access to resources and her career. She had, uh, you know, really sort of started getting recognized quite late in her career. I mean, when I was working with her, at, at Berkeley, she was, you know, in her 70s. And, and she was like, starting to win all these awards that, you know, people were sort of coming around. Um, she was somebody that was really easy to underestimate. I mean, she never had a tenure track job because Berkeley refused to hire uh, uh, anyone who was married to a faculty member and her husband was a mathematician. And, and so they just, you know, it was a sort of institutional sexism kind of policy. Um, and, and, you know, she, it, a lot of this was like her hard work and then people being willing to recognize her for it. Um, and so I think the challenge with this kind of stuff is like, those aren't the people you're going to know about by yourself. And so, you know, one thing to do maybe is to put in place some kind of process where you explicitly can, can like beat the bushes for people who are under recognized. And so, so, you know, and, and this is hard maybe if you're one person, you know, doing a named award lecture or something at, at your university, but like asking your students, asking, putting out the call. Um, because I think, you know, there is this like tip of the tongue sort of accessibility yeah. thing that happens. And like I was on an SPSP awards panel and the, you know, the people that get nominated, it's like just really skewed in terms of gender, in terms of race and ethnicity. It's like, you know, people see the call and they, you know, one at a time, they nominate the most obvious person. Um, and that makes it really tough for the awards panel if, like, our panel of nominees is all the obvious people. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so I actually keep a spreadsheet and I add names whenever I come across them of, like, people who, I mean, the dimension I care a lot about is this, like, replicability stuff. Um, so, like, whether I come across them at conferences or on Twitter or whatever, especially, like, the people, right, like, the point is to have names that I might otherwise forget about, I might not hear about super often, um, and I break it down by, like, career stage and things like that, so that when I do want to think of people outside the box, I have, like, over 100 now on my list. So if anybody's ever looking for for suggestions, feel free. I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to name any names on the podcast, but, like, I'm happy to suggest people if that would help through email or whatever. But yeah, I think I think also like if you're in a position to to rock the boat a little bit, even if everyone else expects you to pick someone with high name recognition or at a prestigious institution or whatever, like bucking that and saying, well, this person really deserves it and is going to be good and so on, and going out on a limb for someone who 
other people wouldn't have picked, I think is a really good thing to use your position for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think going back to Sanjay, what we were talking about maybe last episode about whether, you know, the most famous people give the best talks and you were sort of like adamantly of the position that (laughs) that's not the case. Um, Like, yeah, I mean, you can, there are very junior researchers who give incredible talks um, and do incredible research. And I think, you know, like somebody in my position, for instance, who can nominate speakers, you can also go a long way to convincing people that the person that you picked is worth their time, right? So even if they haven't necessarily heard the name before, um, you know, you can tell them why they should care about this this person. Um, so, yeah, you sometimes have some power to create the name recognition or some replacement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just go around your department going like, I'm so excited Joe Schmoe's yeah, coming. Exactly. <laughs> you've, you've read all his work, right? And, and just like <laughs> yeah, act exactly. like people are supposed to know who they are and then they'll all feel guilty and, and go go read it. <laughs> yeah, just like create a bunch of a bunch of fake Twitter accounts and be like, oh my God, did you hear this person is coming? I can't <laughs> just, believe this. <laughs> so, so that's our solution, astroturfing. Just <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what does astroturfing mean? So uh, astroturfing, so you know the term like grassroots, like grassroots act- activism, yes. like yeah. coming from the people or whatever. So astroturfing is when you do fake grassroots. It's oh, like cool. AstroTurf is like artificial turf, right? And so, yes, so yeah. yeah, so it's it's kind of like a marketing, it's like a sleazy marketing technique, but uh, where you make it seem like, or it's also in politics a lot, like you make it seem like the people want something when you're really like paying people to, to say it. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I don't know if we've helped that much because we did get asked for specific suggestions. I think, uh, <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, yeah. Con- I mean, I have, I have. Some yeah, DM Samin or, or any of us, and and um, but I think yeah, I think also like just asking around, specifically asking like who's overlooked. Um, that I would be really interested to know if that if that works because that seems like maybe um, something to 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 try. But yeah, cool. All right. Well, so thank you to Anonymous for. And didn't Anonymous say we could say their name? But uh, we, yeah, I but that, I think we have a policy that we don't say anyone's name. Because we, or right, at we least don't want We don't want to create like social pressure for people to feel like they have to. Right. Uh, so um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you to Anonymous. Uh, we know who you are, and you know who you are, um, and uh, we appreciate the letter. And if you're listening and you want to email us, you can reach us, letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Um, we are on Twitter at blackcoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackcoatpod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash blackcoatpod. Uh, we've got a website, www.theblackcoatpodcast.com. And we love hearing from people, your thoughts about things we've discussed, your letters to be discussed on, on episodes, or just to, to let us know what you're thinking. And thank you, everybody who listens, because we really appreciate feedback, interaction. You can rate us on iTunes. That helps people find us. All that stuff is awesome, and we really appreciate it. Cool. So uh, so for our main topic, we decided to talk about sort of what comes next after major career milestones and specifically getting tenure and getting full. And that's something that is relevant for all three of us, because... Alexa just got tenure and Samin and I just got promoted to full. And so I think we've all been thinking about it lately. Um, Should we explain what full means? I think do people, for people, well, like in the I UK, it's not called full. 
So there's like assistant professor, associate professor, and full professor in the U.S. typically. And typically tenure comes with the transition from assistant to associate. And then there's another big promotion or like whatever. You have to get outside letters and things like that. And then there's a decision about being promoted from associate professor to full professor, which is also just called professor. But people say full professor just to be clear. Um, yeah. So so I think our I think the specifics are kind of us and canada centric but i think the hopefully the more general issue of sort of like yeah, yeah. reaching these gigantic milestones right will, will be but actually interest. i mean i was sort of joking and sort of serious so when you become a full professor the things that change are like you get a, a raise and you get a title change um are there other things that change that i don't know about it's you're not... eligible for some things that you weren't before. So like many departments have either explicit uh, or implicit yeah, yeah, right. policy that like to be department chair, you might have to be full right. or to be an editor in chief of a journal, you might have to be full or to be uh, whatever, or like you get service, uh, service duty, like to be on a tenure and promotion committee. I think at a lot of universities, you have to be a full professor, things like that. Yeah. It's, it's not as, it's not as dramatic and it's more, it's more on the, like, I think, and this is something we should definitely talk about. Like, Getting getting tenure is both like a thing that's awesome for you and a whole set of expectations that are put upon you that sort of shift. And and I think the full promotion, it's more the like, like Samin was saying, the sort of service and other like, you know, you, you might become, I mean, for some people, maybe being a department chair is viewed as a plus <laughs> but for others. It's like, oh, shit, <laughs> my turn's going to come up soon. Um, yeah. And, and so, and, and I, I do think like Samin was saying, sometimes it's more, more official things. And sometimes it's more kind of informal expectations. Like at my university, there's not a written rule that you can't be a department chair um, without being full professor, but for larger departments, it's kind of a de facto practice. Like smaller departments, sometimes will will do that just because they have to sort of spread it around. But like in in my department, it's it's we've had an associate as a, a chair once for like a year, but um, most of the time it's yeah. But yeah, so I mean, I think the um, you know I I mean I was when I made tenure, I. It was kind of an interesting, it was like a weird time. And, you know, I've talked about this before a little bit on the podcast, but it was a while ago. Like, it was, all these other things were going on in my life at the same time, too. Like, I had just become a parent, and that was a huge sort of personal role transition. So it's hard to kind of put things on it, but, on on that specifically. But, like, there is this sort of, there's a sense that you've had this, like, giant, thing that you're working towards and now you've made it and this this sort of sense of like okay like what now and I don't know when I when I talked to like some people it's hard in terms of like their day-to-day and and but even their larger thinking and strategy it's like hardly a blip on the radar because they just I'm just going to keep doing what I was doing and then other people it's it's kind of like you know they want to pause and catch their breath or they want to rethink things I don't know Alexa I mean how do you feel about it like you know you've you've had this news now for a couple of months like have, have you been sort of questioning your life or are you just <laughs> like I'm, okay I, I'm glad I got this thing done but I'm gonna keep doing my thing yeah I mean I do think that I have been questioning my life I mean there's the the emotional consequence of getting tenure which I think I have described actually on the podcast is this feeling of no longer having a stomach ache you know where it's like like I don't feel now and I didn't like when I got tenure like this super like 
like celebratory positive emotion. I did for a very short period of time, of course, but um, but I think there is something to be said for this like lack of worry, right? So there's like one source of worry and anxiety in my life that is no longer there, which is quite a big deal. And there were times when it was very anxiety provoking to me. Um, so that changed. But then also I think there is something that comes. So I think maybe people experience this a little bit when they move from being an undergraduate student to being a graduate student, where it's less clear what your extrinsic motivators are. Um, and so you need to sort of find a source of intrinsic motivation to be a successful graduate student. Yeah, I should maybe not say this on the podcast, but I've been going around asking people, why don't full professors become Deadwood? Like, yeah. I can't really <laughs> come up with a lot of good <laughs> answers to that question. I mean, it's, some do, but many don't. It's survivor bias. My my colleague Sarah used to say uh, um, that the, the about tenure that the the people that get tenure are the hamsters that keep running after you take their wheels away, <laughs> and it's sort of like I think it's it's you've been you've survived this long. Because you're the, I mean, obviously that some people do become Deadwood, right? But like the process. Are you like, saying that ego depletion is not real? <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that like you can't, I'm saying the personality is real. Like you can't, I think, I think like it's really hard to sustain like literally decades of work just for extrinsic reasons. And so I yeah. think people's motivations can change or... and other things, but. You know, I think a lot of the extrinsic motivators are still there too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, I was going to make this point that I think there is a shift that that we have fewer extrinsic motivators, and then you have to like find the things that are meaningful to you. And I think that's hap- something that happens at the beginning of grad school, and also um, maybe at the beginning of having tenure. Um, but I think, an- yeah, another answer, and I agree with the survivor bias, but like. Another answer is that we're also motivated by what other people think of us, and that doesn't go away when you get tenure, right? So people yeah. people and, don't become yeah. deadwood because they don't want to be seen as deadwood. I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there, you know, there's still prestige to be earned. There's still like annual reviews and merit raises, and and you know, we have like yeah. six, these six year reviews that are kind of major review points and that kind of thing, where like you know, so like yeah, like I know in in six years. I'm going to have a six-year post-tenure or post-promotion review. And it's not going to be as arduous as like getting tenure, but I'm going to have to put in a packet and my colleagues are going to look at it and they're going to tell me what they think of me. And so yeah, yeah. that's, yeah. I mean, my more serious question is not why don't people become deadwood, but why do people still do things that they think are bullshit? Like, yeah, I can, I, agree. I really can't think of reasons to keep doing things that I was just doing for extrinsic reasons. And and that doesn't mean I'll stop doing anything, but it it will, if I continue to feel this way, drastically change how I spend my time. I don't think overall I'll work a lot fewer hours, although I think I will work a little bit less. I mean, I think I've worked a little bit less many years since, like there's been a linear trajectory since getting my first job, tenure track job. But like I, there's like entire chunks of things that I like, I could never do that again. And that sounds so appealing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think uh, like I, what? Um, 
I don't know how much I want to say out loud. Like I have. <laughs> Wait, I, I thought you just said, I thought your whole people. thing is you don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah, I care about my graduate students and I care about, yeah, yeah, mostly I care about my graduate students. But like I imagine in the future, and I love my graduate students and I love mentoring graduate students. And you guys know that it's not easy for me to say those words. Um, but <laughs> what one of those words in particular? My were texting me that, yesterday. Wait, wait, wait. What? That's why. Yes, that's, that's why you couldn't thing. remember Courtney Love's last name. Oh, yeah. It's your. <laughs> it's the word that your brain suppresses. Me about how I really need to tell Hugo that I love him, and I was like, guys, he knows what I mean when I call him my little monster. I mean. <laughs> Sorry, we've just completely derailed. So you were just saying, no, no. so can you so, can like, you start, just repeat the part where you said you love your graduate students. Yeah. Go from there. <laughs> I, I don't wish that I didn't have graduate students. I don't wish that I wasn't mentoring graduate students. But I wish I didn't have to do the things that I only do because my graduate students need jobs. So like publishing in bullshit journals that I don't like, or applying for grants, to be honest. I wouldn't need grants if I didn't need to fund my graduate students like in the summer and travel and things like that. Um, so I could imagine a world where I wind down my lab, I finish up with the grad students I'm working with and take some time off of having grad students. I would still really, really want to mentor graduate students. So I would try to like mentor other people's grad students. <laughs> yeah, see right. But, um, and like, I would have my relationships with my current and former graduate students too. So in a way I would still have that. And I think it would be kind of cool to not have to publish in journals I don't like, to not have to apply for grants, to not have to publish in journals at all if I don't. Like, if I can get my ideas out on blogs and preprints and whatever and no journal wants them, then to not care. Like, that would be cool to spend more of my time on things that aren't, that don't go on my CV or whatever. Like, so blogging or being on Twitter. I love being on Twitter. It's so rewarding to me. But, like, yeah, that's not rewarded in my career. And it's maybe not even really should be. Maybe it shouldn't be. Um, but I would love to spend more time on stuff like that or just writing whatever I want to write, like blog type things like that. Yeah. Aren't exactly scholarship. And I can see why they're not. I'm not like just saying the system's fucked up or something like that. Like it's actually, it's partly just me wanting to do things that aren't exactly in my job description. Yeah. So I think this, you know, a, maybe a different way of framing your questions. I mean, cause this is something I've been thinking about a lot too, is what like, what does success, what does ongoing success look like? Success in an authentic way look like? Because I feel like the, if you, if you sort of say like, what's the model of success long-term in, in an academic career? There's kind of like the main thing, if, if you were just sort of ask people superficially, you know, it's like one thing that people hold up is like, you just continue to have a big lab, ever bigger, you have like giant grants, you're pumping out you know, graduate students and postdocs and papers and, and kind of like that's that's one model. And, and that's something that the system very much rewards people for. Um, and so, yeah, like what, you know, what are you supposed, quote unquote, supposed to do if you if you just sort of ask people, like, who are the most successful people that that's I think that's one common prototype. There's another prototype, which is like going into administration. Right. So what do some people do? sort of later in their careers, they, you know, they become a department head and then maybe they become a dean or a, you know, vice something, whatever. Um, and that's, and, and both of those are like, we need people doing those. But this is something I've been thinking about a lot too, is like, in some ways it reminds me of the discussion we have about quote unquote non-academic jobs in graduate school, where there's this kind of like, everybody's talking about this one vision of success after you get your PhD, which is like, you go on to an R1 tenure track job 
and the and and it's gotten better since I was a graduate student, but there's still a lot of like people saying like, "Hey, shouldn't we be recognizing other things not as like secondary, but as like equally valid?" But it, it's really difficult when everyone around you is saying this is this is what success is supposed to look like, and then if you want to do something different, figure it out and convince us that it's worth your time, like you know twitter or you know like <laughs> whatever you know blogging or, or you know and i mean there's kind of versions of that there's people that get involved in policy there's people that get involved in science communication but it's not like a a well-trodden path that people say like oh you're gonna go on the like outreach and science communication track as your main thing like that's really lauded right. if, you, if you've got the big lab well, and you also do that but yeah. And part of the reason is I feel like after full, you're supposed to like want to become part of some establishment, like either lead societies or lead your department or lead what your lab, like just have an ever bigger lab and stuff like that. And like, I kind of have the opposite feeling of like, I just want to be like poking at the establishment and like, that's not something that people would hire me for or like be super <laughs> glad that I was spending my time doing, but what can they do now? I mean, they could not give yeah. me raises, but that's about the worst they could do. Right. And that's like, I mean... The fact that there isn't a well-trodden path, I mean, makes it a little bit less clear that these are ways to be successful. I, but I think sort of like the point is that you can worry less about recognized ways of being successful once you don't have to worry about your job security and raises and so much and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've... I haven't had tenure for very long, but I've noticed that the things that I think about are, I mean, I try to generally as a policy think about like ways that I think are worthwhile of spending my, for spending my time and just try to like maximize um, the extent to which I do that. And then, you know, do the things that I have to, to whatever extent I have to. Um, and for me, like we've talked about this a little on the podcast, but um Sometimes, you know, like the benefits of teaching and the impact of teaching seem really obvious to me. And so like, I see like a lot of value in that. And it seems like uh, that's something that I can spend more time on now. Um, like also teaching at the prison and things like that. Um, I have a lot of the same preferences as you, Samin, minus Twitter, of course. <laughs> um, but uh I, I do wonder, I also think about my graduate students and things like that. Um, and I do wonder, like, I guess I worry sometimes that it's uh, motivated reasoning so that I'm thinking like, well, these are the things that sort of come more easily to me. So um, so I'm going to do less of these other things that are important and like valuable uses of my time um, just because I want to do them less. Um, so, but I was uh, I was talking to my boyfriend the other day who's teaching English comp um, and he was saying that he has a friend who did an entire English comp class based on Aziz Ansari's book. Um, do you know what it's called, Samin? I don't remember. Um, well, I'll figure it out and we can put it in the uh, show notes. This was before the, the sexual harassment controversy with Aziz Ansari. Um, but he did his whole class based on that book and I was just like, Wow. Like, I could totally reinvent classes in these, like, creative and innovative ways. And that's, I mean, that stuff sounds pretty exciting to me. Um, so, yeah, it's nice to not have to have to think as much about what would be conventionally thought of as, like, a, a successful thing to do. Um, 
Also, I'm sitting in my office right now wearing like uh, stretch pants and like a an oversized like men's sweater, and I haven't washed my hair. And I think it might be a little bit to do with tenure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely one of the biggest perks for me was worrying a lot less about if I'm underdressed. That's so funny. I I like I went through this phase where I did the opposite, where I like started going to like Goodwill and Buffalo Exchange and like looking for like tweed jackets and stuff to like <laughs> <laughs> I felt like it was in like professor drag or something like you know it was, I, I kind of like went through this period where it's just like I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna look the part and it was, it was kind of fun I still have a couple of those jackets in my closet but they don't get much use anymore one thing I was thinking about the other day and this is kind of off topic but it's related is like I was thinking about like yeah how I want to spend my time and how I want to do things that like I other people don't seem to want to do like I would love to just like edit all the time or I would love to whatever like there's Mm -hmm. and I've been asking a lot of people like why do you keep writing grants and publishing papers if that's not exactly how you would want to spend your time or maybe you would still do research but it wouldn't be the research you have to do to get grants and get into those journals or whatever and I can't get a good answer and then I was thinking like maybe being on my own is like because I was thinking, like, when you have a partner, especially if you live with your partner, they track you and they, like, they make sure you're not a crazy person. You. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, maybe this is the downside of being on my own for a while that I hadn't really thought of. Like, would you guys tell me if I was going crazy? <laughs> I mean, I think I, I think the the issue of like the people around you is I think that's a really important one. So my my partner is the opposite of that. Like, she's you know she's completely game for me to do whatever. I want to and like not only game but like will you know cheer me on slash egg me on you know about like you know she she's not like you know you have to be conventionally whatever like you know so but I think having I think this is one of the reasons that it's easy to do those well well worn tracks is because you will get validated from the people around you they'll they'll say you're doing the thing you're supposed to be doing And, you know, I think if you're if you're someone who needs like a consensus of all the people around you, it's really hard and to to not follow that track. And and Mm -hmm. if you and I think all of us are, you know, sensitive to that to some degree greater than zero, but some more than others. And so I think one of the things is that if you're going to do something that's not the, the sort of like the default is having people around you both who will cheer you on for it but then also like I think we all need those reality checks where Mm -hmm. you know someone maybe it's not everyone maybe it's not the collective but it's like people who understand what I'm trying to do and share my values to just be able to say am I even doing the thing that I'm trying to do well yeah right right even if the thing I'm trying to do is different than what everyone else is saying yeah yeah it's hard to know whether you're becoming like you're successful in an unconventional way that, you know, is consistent with your values or you're just like, yeah, becoming a crazy person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a good point, Sanjay. I mean, tenure is supposed to be, and and I think to some extent, you know, because I mean, one of the things you're asking, like, you know, with full, one one of the things that's kind of, I've been sort of thinking about is like, I don't think there's anything left in my career track that requires external letters. Um, right. I like think we have one more step if you, that's optional, but okay. yeah. Yeah. I think for, for me, I think the, like those reviews that come up, I'm pretty sure we, maybe we do. I'm, uh, but anyway, like the idea of that I have to get, 
anybody else's like or the sort of like the approval of anonymous strangers that I haven't chosen and don't know who they are and that my like you know something whatever my my stature and my immediate environment is going to be dependent on that like that's obviously it's not as you know as big a deal as tenure but like what what tenure is is it's kind of like a it's a freedom from interference right that's that's a big part of what it's supposed to be is it's it's a freedom from Mm -hmm. right like you you know like something that really matters which is like being able to keep your income and your title and and you know a lot of the things that go with it it's much harder to threaten those and so you you have more leeway um and so i mean you you know like asking samine you were asking like you know people who got full like why do you keep doing the things you you know maybe don't want to be doing and and you know with tenure and and i think you know promotion to full where like you're less reliant on others you know it's also like why aren't you doing the things that you do want to do um Mm -hmm. because you've now got this protected position where like yeah people can shit on you and they can say things but they can't get rid of you yeah one answer is if you ever want to change jobs (laughs) that's one way in which you're never completely free unless you know for sure that you'd be happy to stay where you are yeah but but it's a it's a right it's not an absolute thing right because you you know you still want to get even if you want to stay in the same place you want to get raises and you want to get you know all these other Mm -hmm. things although i think some of that we are irrational like we think we can predict what's going to get us a raise or we think it's going to make a bigger difference than it is like i feel like after tenure and, and especially after full, like there's just so few concrete reasons to be confident that playing the game is worth it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I I sort of alluded to this before that like when I got tenure, I went through, I went through a lot of self questioning. I wasn't one of those people who was like, oh, this is great, this is awesome. I'm just going to keep doing what I was doing. Like I, I had you know, some, some research that I'd kind of been still working on to see things through, but that I was less excited about continuing that line of work. Um, I was having, you know, in my, you know, non-work life, a huge role transition to becoming a parent. Um, I got married a couple of years before. And so, um, yeah, so I, I went through kind of a funk after I got tenure because I, it, you know, I was sort of like, I'm sick of the things I am doing, but I didn't have this like laundry list of the next things I wanted to be doing that I was just sort of like sitting on. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to start doing these things now. I, I kind of like, I wasn't prepared for that. And I mean, I think one thing, I mean, it seems Alexa, like you're like, you know, doing, you know, community work in the prison system, for example, is like you had something, you'd already started it, but this is like a different direction that you find really rewarding. And I think something I'd say to people who are coming up on tenure and to some extent coming up on full promotion, although it's a little different, is like starting to think about that a year or two or three in advance. Um, and, you know, might, you know, I, I don't know if it would have it's not that I didn't think about what, what am I going to do after tenure? You know, it's not like I was caught by yeah. surprise. Um, in fact, I, what I was caught by surprise was how much I was questioning because I wasn't expecting to question as much after I got tenure. Um, but that that is something that I think, like, people coming up on those transitions, if, you know, if you're able, if you're, if you're somebody who's inclined to question your life at every moment the way I am, <laughs> then, like, being prepared for that... Um, you know, might, might help. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting point. I think, um, so something that I've been talking about friends, um, about with friends recently is just, um, the idea that like most things can be enjoyable if you're not rushed. Um, and so I had a friend who went to like a, I think a mindfulness retreat or something and they did like, like cleaning stuff and tried to like be mindful as they were doing it. Um, this is my uh, colleague, Andrea, who was like just such a good person. Um, and she was like, yeah, you know, when I didn't, when I knew that I just had to be cleaning and like, I couldn't be doing anything else. It was like, it was fine. It wasn't, it wasn't not enjoyable. And then like, I ended up with this like really clean thing at the end. Um, but like, I, I sort of know what she means. And I think like one nice thing, I don't know actually if this has that much to do with tenure, but I've felt this way more about my job recently is just being able to decide on the things that I think are important and spend time doing that and be sort of like at peace with the fact that other things will um, go on the back burner. Um, for me, like that, a lot of that has been editing. I've been doing like much more editing <laughs> compared to zero <laughs> than before. Um, now, now I do um, more. And um, I think especially like as being a reviewer, I think before felt this, like this extra thing, like you get a, a paper to review and it's like, okay, now I have this extra thing on my to-do list that I have to knock off. But now I see that as like more a part of my role and I'm slot in time for that. And that's so nice. Like, it's like something that I really enjoy doing. And when I don't associate it with being this like extra added on thing, it's like really nice way to spend time. Yeah. I think of it kind of like I've, so I was, you know, the property manager thing that I talked about on the podcast a while ago, like really changed my life. And I feel like people still bring it up to me when they, when podcast listeners meet me in real life. And I love talking about it because I really feel like it was this like crazy insight that like was so easy and just really changed my life. And so I'm looking for the equivalent of that in my work life, which is like the same idea that you're talking about, like freeing up time to prioritize the things that you actually feel like you're good at and making a difference when you do it and like or whatever some combination of those things whatever that Venn diagram is of like passion and ability and whatever mm -hmm. else um and I feel like there's yeah other things that we feel like we have to do but maybe there's a solution like the property manager thing where like it turned out to save me time and money and like there's basically like no downside um yeah so I've been trying to figure out like what the equivalent of that is in my work life because I feel like there is this like thing that if I could just unlock it then I would have this like I think you just want to hire an assistant I don't know why you're being <laughs> shy about saying it <laughs> yeah that doesn't pay for itself like a property manager <laughs> yeah I need some seed money to hire a postdoc to write grants to pay a postdoc <laughs> right. and then it'll just yeah. become a self but that's, right. that's actually like grants are the first thing I want to cut out because they are self-perpetuating right once you have one you feel like you have to have them and then the other people depend on them and all this stuff and so like freeing myself of those kinds of cycles like feels really appealing not that I've had a ton of grants <laughs> so it's been a big problem <laughs> for me I've managed to never become dependent on summer salary that hasn't been a problem for me um, um, we we had some uh, points related to our main topic and I wanted to ask you about one which is um, like what are things that you didn't expect um, that happened once you had tenure 
I need warnings. I find it so hard to talk about like what effect tenure had for me because so many things happened at the same time. So like the replicability crisis started right when I got tenure. My life yeah. just changed dramatically. Like I changed jobs, I changed relationships, I sold my home, I got my heart broken. I like went through a period mm-hmm. of like no productivity, but probably not related to tenure. So all these things happened for me. And changing jobs was probably the biggest one in terms of like trying to separate out the impact of having tenure. So like I think I was if I had stayed at my job where I got tenure, I was on track to take on a lot more service and I was actually feeling fine about it. And then I moved and I thought I would take on the same amount of service and same type of service, like department service here. And I managed to actually not slip into that role here. And I really liked that. But I think that's I think if I hadn't moved right after tenure, I would have been saddled with a lot more department service. And I might have been okay at that department, but I feel like it's kind of a silver lining of moving that I kind of got to start service over at zero. I mean, I do the service for the field stuff, like editing and all that hasn't gone down. If anything, it's gone up, but service to my department and university has gone down. And I kind of realize that's not where I want to be. I'm not, that's not a high priority for me. I'd much rather do editing than department service if I had the choice. And so far I do, but I think that's mm-hmm. atypical. I think that's a function of my move. So it doesn't answer your question. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think the. I think. I think service is a really big topic after tenure because what, you know, there's a lot of service positions that, for both sort of paternalistic reasons and kind of their own self-interested reasons, like people are waiting until after you get tenure to to ask you to do. Um, and when I when I got tenure, like the you know the the service vultures that had been circling started swooping down, and uh, I you know that's kind of a mean way to describe things because these you know these were like legitimate things, but um, you know you, I just started getting asked to do all kinds of stuff, and I went through a period where I was one saying yes to too many things and getting stretched too thin but i think um and i think that's like a sort of that's a difficult thing for people to deal with but we talk about it a lot like learning to say no um to just volume of things but what i hadn't really thought as much about as i i wish i had now i think about more is being planful and programmatic about service so thinking about like what are you good at and enjoy And then rather than doing, you know, if you're even if you're going to add up to the same amount of workload, rather than saying yes to a little bit of everything, sort of focusing on the the things you enjoy. So there, you know, there's different departmental kinds of service that might some of it might involve organizing things. Some of it might involve interfacing with graduate students or undergraduates or whatever. There's, you know, different kinds of external service, service to mm-hmm. societies, service to, you know, to journals in the form of editing and that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, and I, I, I sort of like, <clears throat> I felt like people, people would ask me and I'd be like, what, you want me to do this? Like, you know, I, I sort of, you know, naively felt flattered that people were asking me to do these things. <laughs> and, you know, and so I'd say yes, because I'd be like, yeah, little old me, you want little old me to like edit a journal? And I'd be like, holy shit, this is a lot of work, you know. Um, uh, and, you know, yeah, anyway, so so that, I think that's, I think sort of like thinking of service programmatically and planfully and saying no, not only on the basis of volume, but on the basis of like a plan is, is yeah. something I wish I had. I, I, it took me a while to figure that out. 
Yeah, and I will say that, like, I think I also was used to thinking of service as something, well, something similar to reviewing, right? So something that I see as this, like, extra thing that gets in the way of the only thing that I'm rewarded for, right? Which is basically being um, publishing a lot. Um, But if you do have this mentality that, and this becomes much easier once you have tenure, right? That, like, these are like valuable ways to spend your time also. And if you choose the service things that are meaningful to you, then service starts to feel less like this, like extra thing that you have to do. And that just this different part of your job that you now can feel freer to devote your time to, because you don't have the same pressure to be always just like getting service obligations out of the way to, to make time for, um, make time for research or publishing. Or um, So like, I, I think, I think I have some, yeah, service responsibilities that I see as like very integral to to my job that I really like doing. Related to that, I think one thing I didn't anticipate, and it's not exactly like linked with tenure, but just linked with becoming more senior, is that as you take on these roles and responsibilities, um, like in your department, in your university, at journals or whatever, you become the gatekeeper. You become like the person with power and I think our self-image often doesn't update as quickly as the reality and so we don't realize the responsibility we have and so I think one thing maybe for people who are just like starting you know getting tenure or moving up in their career is to think about like that you are now you have a different relationship to vulnerable people people earlier in their career stages and so on and you have responsibility to them and one thing I didn't anticipate is how much post-tenure life and work life would have to do with courage like that but was not on my radar before <laughs> and now mm-hmm. it's like something I think about all the time about like when am I being a wuss and when am I like mustering up enough courage and things like that maybe that's a whole nother episode topic um but I think that's something I didn't anticipate yeah yeah, yeah. cool well maybe that's a good note to end on yeah yeah that's like a to-be-continued note. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe sometime we'll talk about courage. Academic courage. All right, cool. Well, uh, thanks, guys, and thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been The Black Goat, and we'll uh, talk to you next time. Bye.